Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. While you're turning, thank you to the choir for again another beautiful anthem and also to Elizabeth and Sewell who were up early this morning and sang for us at the 815 service as well. And what a privilege it is to have this kind of talent shared with us in worship. Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, where Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son. And he named him Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for this privilege of studying it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have four gospels that tell us the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all are telling us this good news of Jesus Christ, but they all do it kind of differently. They each have their unique style. Mark was the first gospel that was written, and Mark just kind of tells you the way it is. He goes, this happened, and immediately the people responded this way, and then this happened, and immediately the people responded that way, but he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't elaborate. It just is what it is. Here's what happened. Here's how they responded. Next story. Matthew... Matthew's the preacher. He takes the story and he goes, here's what happened. Let me tell you why it happened. Let me tell you what this means. And let me give you some Old Testament scripture to back it up. Because he's the preacher. He had to have at least three points. <laughs> and then there was Luke. Luke is the physician. Luke is the one who really wants us to see that, that God so loved the world in the sense that not just those of us on the inner circle, but those of us that are on the fringes and those of us that have been marginalized and those that are outside anybody's circle. That God cared for the least, the last, the lost. And, and you see that compassion story that Luke really wants us to see. John John's the theologian of the crowd. John is the one that, that writes these things. He said, in no particular order, I just want you to believe. And that through believing, you may have life in his name. 
Well, Matthew is trying to introduce to us the Christ. He's introducing Christ to Christmas. And in this story in particular, he really wants us to figure out who this is. And it's, I think it's important for us to spend some time reflecting on these stories that we've heard over and over again. I've been wrestling, as I've told you before, with how do we as the church, how do we as pastors, how do we as Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, how do we reintroduce Christ to Christianity? How do we introduce Christ to Christendom, which may sound like a foreign word, but it simply means a time when Christianity is prevalent. How do we introduce Christ to a culture that has so much exposure to Christianity, we think we've already got it. The other morning, I had a, a 7 o'clock breakfast meeting uptown Charlotte with one of our members. If, if you're going to meet people, you have to you know, try to do it when they're available. So it's either breakfast, lunch, coffee, different things. And, and so I, I met uptown Charlotte, and then I was driving back to the church down Providence Road, and I was reminded why it must be called Providence. There's a church everywhere you go down Providence Road. I mean, it was just amazing. You know, it just kind of hit me that day. It's like, well, there's this church, there's that church, there's this church, and then another church, and another church, and here's a church, and there's a church, here's a church, there's a church, everywhere, church, church. I mean, it was just everywhere. Because Christianity is so prevalent in our communities. I mean, we have all the symbols. We have the signs of the churches. The question is, is Christ as prevalent as Christianity? Is Christ as prevalent as Christianity? I mean, we, we have the morals and the values and the behaviors and the stuff. But do we have the relationship? And how do we reintroduce then Christ to Christmas? It's considered by some that we're in a post-Christian era. That always bothered me when I was in seminary. And they would talk about you know, ministry in a post-Christian era. And I'm going, great. About the time I'm entering into it, it appears we're already done with it. You know? And so post-Christian, what does that mean? And, and so John O'Sullivan in, a, in an article wrote that it means it's a society that is rooted in history and the culture and the practices of Christianity but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or even worse, forgotten. Did you catch that? It's a society rooted in the history, culture, and practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or even worse, forgotten. What does it mean to reintroduce Christ Christianity, I, I love the phrase by Soren Kierkegaard, and it kind of convicted me when I heard it the first time, that it is easier to become a Christian when I am not one than it is to become a Christian when I am one. How do we help people who think they already have it to understand what might be missing in our lives? So Matthew is trying to announce to us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's pushing this point. Now, some of your Bibles may have said the birth of Jesus the Christ took place this way. Some said Jesus the Messiah. You have to remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament word is Messiah. The New Testament word is Christos or Christ, but it means the same thing. It's the anointed one of God. It's a title. 
Now, oftentimes, we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. We drop the article the, you know, so we just go Jesus Christ, but it's a title. It's not his last name. Jesus Christ was not the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. You know, they're the Christ family that grew up in Nazareth there. It's a title. It means the anointed one of God. And in biblical times, who were anointed? Were the kings. Remember in 1 Samuel, when God called Saul to be the first king in Israel, he said to Samuel, go and anoint Saul, king over Israel. When it came time for David to become king, he says to Samuel again, go and find David and anoint him king over all of Israel. So when we hear this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one, it means that, that this is God's king. It's the king that God has set aside, king of kings, lord of lords, not just a good man. This is the savior of the world. To make the point, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Oh, If you're like me, when you read the Bible and you get to the genealogies, you have a tendency to go, well, let's just kind of skip on down here, which is why we started at verse 18. Otherwise, on this recording, that people all would be able to pull up going, did you see how he butchered that name? I mean, we struggle sometimes with genealogies, don't we? I mean, who begat who begat who begat who? And, and, and making all the connections, we, we wrestle with it. My grandmother was great with genealogies. She could trace you back. I mean, she could look over at you, and, and, and she could just frisane. Are you one of the frisanes that are kin to? And she could take, so your grandmother's cousin was married to, and, and then and the next thing you know, we'd be cousins which is why we didn't allow my grandmother and Nancy's grandmother to meet until the day of the wedding. <laughs> we knew they could mess this thing up and make us cousins. <laughs> Create a problem for us. But we're, people are getting into genealogies now with Ancestry, you know, .com and the ability to do your DNA testing and try to figure out who you're kin to and related to it. We started doing that on my father's side. My mother and an aunt started doing it on my father's side and decided we just need to stop. <laughs> and, and that's, I promise you, that's what they decided. It just kind of stops. It started getting murky. It started getting ugly. <laughs> it got to the point where, you know, sometimes you just need to go, we're going to draw a line right here, and we're just going to start here. It's kind of like that new birth thing that... I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. And we're going to move on forward. It, it can get rough, but Jesus' genealogy was really important. And Matthew felt that it was important for you and for me to hear this genealogy and to know about it. Actually, the very first verse of Matthew, Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew says, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and then he starts listing the names. But he, it's interesting. He told us in verse 1, I'm going to share with you a genealogy, but what I want you to catch is in the midst of this, you're going to see that he's the son of Abraham. And in the midst of this, you're going to go on to see that he's the son of David. And that's important to you. So he tells you in verse 1, this is what you're going to hear, and then he tells you. And the reason for that is because it was prophesied in the Scripture that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So he's going, all right, here we go. This is the lineage of Jesus, and check mark, there's David. So he fits that. But it's going to be the son of Abraham, who's the father of the faith. 
check mark, there's Abraham. And so he wants us to hear, do you get it? This is the Messiah, and I'm going to tell you, check, check, this is the son of David, son of Abraham. Right up front. I want you to know who this Christ is. And, and then he gets to the birth story, verse 18. And again, he says, the birth of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, took place this way. Now, I want to invite you sometime, but not right now, to reread chapter 1 and notice how many times in chapter 1 Matthew will say Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And when he wraps up the genealogy and he goes, you know, of whom, you know, Mary, of whom he was born, was Jesus. And he is known as the Messiah. The birth of the Messiah takes place this way. Throughout, he's letting us know this is the Christ. This is the one you've been waiting for. So he goes, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. Now, I love Matthew's story of the birth of Christ. It's different than Luke. Matthew's not going to tell us anything about shepherds. He's not going to tell us anything about the angels appearing. It's a different story. He says the birth of Jesus took place this way. Mary and Joseph were engaged to each other. It's probably an arranged marriage from the culture in the day. So they're engaged to each other. And engagement in biblical times was maybe a little more committed than engagements today in the sense that it was a legally binding agreement. I mean, you are now married for all practical purposes, except for you haven't moved in together and consummated the relationship. But, but you are legally, technically married. So they're engaged to be married. And then all of a sudden, one day, Joseph comes home and Mary says, we need to talk. It's never good when somebody says, we need to talk. <laughs> and how do you even begin this conversation? I felt sorry for Mary. How can you begin this kind of conversation? Uh, I need to tell you something. I'm going to have a baby. Great. Right? They haven't been together. So you can imagine what Joseph's thinking, and then she goes, but wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. It's the child of God. Sure it is, Mary. <laughs> I'll give you credit for creativity. That's a new one right there. Blame it on God. And I'm not making this stuff up, elaborating it a little bit, embellishing slightly, but I'm not making it up because... Joseph was ready to divorce her. Did you hear this? You know what that means? That Joseph did not buy the story originally. Sometimes we forget that. Well, you're so used to seeing Mary and Joseph huddled up to each other around the nativity scene and everything looks wonderful, but it was a little harder start than that. I mean, we're told in the scripture that being a righteous man, he didn't want to put her out to public disgrace. Because again, if you were engaged to one another, betrothed to one another, and somebody was found with someone else or found to be with child, that was considered adultery. And according to Deuteronomy, the penalty for adultery could be death. He could have made her a public disgrace and going, look at this. Would you just look? We were engaged to be married, and now she's with child. Obviously, this is a problem. And, and what makes it even worse, we've already sent out the invitations. We cannot get the deposit back on the venue. This is just a horrible situation that we've got going on here. And he could have had her hauled out to the city gates and stoned to death. But he didn't. The scripture said he was going to dismiss her quietly. The Greek actually implies divorce her quietly. But then the coolest thing happens. See, I think we read the Bible too fast sometimes. And 
what we're told in the scriptures is just as he had resolved to do this. I mean, right when he decided to divorce her is when God intervenes with the angel that appears to Joseph and goes, whoa, 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 Joseph, hang on, hang on, time out, time out, take a break. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's telling you the truth. The child conceived in her really is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son. And you're to name him Jesus because the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. And this is all to fulfill what was said in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin would conceive and bear a child and bear a son and you'll name him Emmanuel because the name Emmanuel means God himself is with us. So you'll call him Emmanuel. And we're told that Joseph then did as he was commanded. And he took Mary as his wife. And he loved her. But he had no marital relations with her until she had born a child. And they named him Jesus. Just like God had told him to do. See, Matthew wants us to know that this nativity story is not just a cute baby story. But that God was doing something so new that it was unbelievable. Even to Mary and Joseph, it was hard to believe. That God was intervening in an amazing way that, that this baby doesn't become just a good man. This is actually Jesus because he's going to save his people. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God's anointed King of kings, Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. Matthew wants us to get that in chapter 1. Because he knows that nothing else in this whole book will make sense until we understand who is this baby? Who is this child? Well... Matthew's going to emphasize the point throughout. I mean, you just turn the page and you get to that beautiful story that we love, that there was a group of wise men and they were studying the stars. They were astrologers, highly educated, very sophisticated people from the east. They're looking up and they see something cosmic is happening and, and they see that a star has appeared and, and they realize that it is leading them toward Jerusalem and they arrive and they go up and they find Herod and they ask, where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? Because we have seen it start, it's rising. This is something incredible that God must be doing and, and we want to experience it and we want to be part of it. And, and I want you to catch something really neat. Because they ask, where is the one to be born king of the Jews? Herod is the one then that calls the priest together and goes, where is the Messiah to be born? Did you catch that? It's Herod who knows. If you saw something cosmic that led you here, that means God is intervening in an amazing way. That means this baby must be the Christ. It's Herod that figures that out. So he asks, where is the Messiah to be born? The king of the Jews. Matthew wants you to get it. Even Herod knew who this was. Well, we keep turning the pages through Matthew. Can't go chapter after chapter because... You've got lunch appointments. But you get over to Matthew 16, which is one of those favorite verses that we've studied or scriptures that we've studied numerous times before. And it's when Jesus is asking the question, when you're out among the people, who do they think that I am? 
And, and so they start sharing. Well, have, have people figured out what Matthew wanted us to know at the beginning, who you really are? And, and so they said, well, some people say you're Elijah. Elijah was one of the great Old Testament prophets. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, an amazing prophet that, that foretold the, the tearing down and the rebuilding of Jerusalem during the Babylonian Empire. And, and, and so, yeah, Jeremiah was awesome, but some people think you're Jeremiah. Some people think you're John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and Jesus then looks at him and goes, well, who do you say that I am? And I love trying to picture what this was like because you know when somebody asks a question, nobody wants to make eye contact with the one who just asked that kind of question. So people start looking down at the ground going, I wonder where that black mark came from there on that carpet. I wonder if we can get that up. I wonder if they've tried to get that up before. You know, we start trying not to be the one to make eye contact. Or you start looking up going, how many lights do we have in this church? After all? It's a lot of light. How do you? wonder how you get up there to change them things. Because nobody wants to make eye contact, but Peter did. Peter blinked. Peter did it. He makes eye contact with Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter goes, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're not Elijah. Elijah may have been an amazing prophet, but you're more than that. And you're not Jeremiah. Jeremiah may have been an amazing prophet, but you're so much more than that. And you're not John the Baptist because John the Baptist was the one to prepare the way for the Messiah, but that's not who you are. I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, no human being could have told you that. God had to reveal that to you. And I'm changing your name to Peter, which means rock. And upon this church, upon this faith, upon this rock-solid faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And I was reading some of the statistics with Pew Research and Barna Research and all the others that do some research. And then I shared with our bishop one day in writing, I said, you know, if the church of Jesus Christ is struggling today... And Jesus said that if we have this kind of faith, he could build a church that even the gates of hell will not prevail against. That might be where we want to start looking. That might be where we want to start looking. That perhaps we've gotten so called up with the activities of the church and, and, and the beliefs and the, the, the morals and the ethics and the values that we've forgotten the heart of it, which is the Christ himself. And that everything else is a result of. Everything else springs from who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, we get to the last scene in Matthew. Skip all the way to the back of the book. So you started in chapter 1. We're wrapping up in chapter 28, beginning of verse 16. It's known as the Great Commission. And most of us go directly to the Great Commission, which says, Go therefore and make disciples. What we missed was the word therefore that said something was said before that we might ought to pay attention to. Because if you get a therefore, that means this is a result of something that was said or done earlier. And so when you back up, what he actually said was that Jesus went to Galilee right before he ascends into heaven. He goes up onto a mountain. Now remember that because he's up on a mountain. You need to remember he's up on a mountain. He goes up on the mountain 
And he's with the 11 disciples because Judas is no longer with them. And, and then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples. But all authority, I mean, what a bold statement. All authority on heaven and on earth are given to me. So go make disciples. And what I thought when I started reading that scripture again, I went, wait a minute, and started flipping back in my Bible to Matthew chapter 4, because that's where the temptations are of Jesus. Remember after he's baptized? He goes out into the wilderness and then he's tempted by the devil. And the first temptation, you know, is that he's hungry. And, and in Israel, there are rocks that are about this big everywhere. I mean, perfect loaf size. So no wonder Satan said, well, don't you turn one of these into a loaf of bread. Remember? Man, can I live by bread alone? Then he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. and He says, why don't you jump off from here? Because the scripture says the angels will catch you. He wouldn't let your foot dash against the stone. Jesus said, we're not going to tempt the Lord our God. But then there was a third one. Do you remember the third one? It's kind of arrogant, actually, because Satan takes him up on a hillside, up on the mountain. See, I told you to remember this. He took him up on a mountain. And Satan acts like it was his. He goes, you know what? If you'll just worship me, I'll give you all this. And Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and him alone. Remember that story? But now Jesus is back in Galilee, back on the mountaintop. And now he looks around and goes, actually, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. I mean, that little temptation way back in the wilderness, that was nothing. Because all authority in heaven and on earth now belong to me. So go make disciples of Jesus Christ. Tom Long, who's a great biblical scholar and preacher, said, for Matthew to be a Christian is to be a pupil of Jesus, student of Jesus. And the mission of the church is to go out into the world and to enable all human beings to become students of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we may live in a post-Christian era, and if we do, I think I bear some of the responsibility for that. I think all of our preachers do. I think all of our teachers do. If we live in a post-Christian era, it's because somehow, some way, we got distracted by the stuff instead of the Savior himself. And Matthew wants the church to get it again. He wants to reintroduce Christ to Christmas. He wants to reintroduce Christ to Christendom. He wants to reintroduce Christ to Christianity and remind us that everything we do out there is based on our relationship with Jesus Christ as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, the Son of the everlasting, ever-living, almighty God. Matthew wants you to meet the Christ. And as your pastor, there is nothing I would love more and to reintroduce you to the Christ. Because that's the foundation that makes all the rest of it make sense. That's why Matthew says in chapter 1, I really need for you to get this so you'll understand chapter 2. And he really needs us to get it 
so we'll understand what happens out there. Amen. Thank you.